Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. That was beautiful. Good morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And because that's true, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 12. John chapter 12 is where we left off last week. We're working through the gospel of John, and we find ourselves in the middle of the 12th chapter. As you're finding that, thank you for praying for me, Springer, and you also for my trip to India. I am leaving right after service, and we're driving to the airport And I'm going to spend really pretty much the next 24 hours flying to Paris and then Paris to Mumbai. And then when I'm in Mumbai, I'm going to catch a domestic Indian flight on an Indian airline named SpiceJet. (laughs) So add that to your prayers. (laughs) Uh, I loved the... TV show Batman when I was a little kid. It was like the real Batman, not this strange, goofy stuff in these movies nowadays. Yes, I said it. I'll feel the wrath of my daughter later on this afternoon. But it was simpler. You know, the dialogue was simpler, and there was this character on Batman, the TV show, that was my favorite sort of villain, and he was the Riddler, and he would When he was on, he would offer a a riddle for that episode. And I think our text today presents us with a a kind of riddle. I think it's simple, and I think if we can see it and understand it, I think it is at the very core of what it means to live for Jesus. And here's the riddle that I think that this text presents us with today. There's a kind of love that leads to hate, and there is a kind of hate that leads to love. There's a kind of love that leads to hate, and there's a kind of hate that leads to love. Well, here's my plan. I want to read verses 12 through 26. We're going to stop along the way. We're going to make a few comments. This is a well-known portion of Scripture. It's the triumphal entry of Jesus on Palm Sunday. We, although we're only about halfway through the Gospel of John as far as the chapters, we are really close to the end of Jesus' life. And in this setting, we've just looked last week at Mary anointing Jesus, and we're picking up in verse 12, the triumphal entry of Jesus, and there's going to be a kind of turn midway through our text. We're going to read all the way down through verse 26 eventually, and Jesus is going to give us a statement at the end of the text that we're going to read today, which is a paradigm, a, a, a countercultural paradigm for the Christian life, so... Let me pray and then let's get into the text. Lord, help us as we read your word, as we see your truth in your word. Help me explain it sufficiently. I pray that I would not adorn it in any way that would be a distraction. I pray, Lord, that you would cause me and my personality and my idiosyncrasies and my deficiencies to decrease And that the Word of God, the Son of God, would increase in our hearts and be magnified. Help us now, Lord, to see what Jesus is saying. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Okay, let's pause there. Verse 15 is a quote, a partial quote, from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9, 10, and 11. It's a partial quote of that. We'll get to that in just a second. But this is a familiar scene. We, we know that Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, and in about a week's time, he is going to be crucified. And the crowd that has been wowed by his miracles, that has been gathering primarily because of what we read about in John chapter 11, where Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, the crowd is gathering and they are coming and they're worshiping Jesus. And of course, we probably, if you spend any time in church or maybe you grew up going to church, you are familiar with the symbol of the palm branches on Palm Sunday. But what's going on there? It's not just a a kind of mere decorative thing. It's, it's really a symbol of, of the, for the Jewish people of a great political victory in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. A couple weeks ago, I spoke to you about this, this Maccabean rebellion. There was about 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And during this time, God's people, Israel, were under the, the, the rule of the Syrians, and there was this man, Justice Maccabees, that God raised up. He was a political, military leader for Israel, and he revolted against the rule of the Syrians and overtook them about 150, 160 years or so before the birth of Christ. And this was a kind of political liberation that was a great victory in the history of Israel. Now, it didn't last for long because we find ourselves here in the New Testament during the life of Jesus, and they are now under Roman captivity and Roman rule. But this symbol of the palm branches was a way that about 150 years before, the Jewish people celebrated their liberation from this Syrian king who was just a wicked man. He desecrated the temple and slaughtered a pig right there in the Holy of Holies. And so the palm branches were a symbol of victory for that military victory some 150 years before. And so there's great symbolism here when the crowd is seeing what Jesus has done. They are hearkening back to this great political military victory just 150 years before or so. And really they're saying, we think Jesus is the one that is going to come and rescue us from this, this Roman rule. But what's interesting is that, that, that Jesus is, is, is this, John is hearkening back to this prophecy of Zechariah. So let me read to you what, what is quoted here in verse 15. And there's, there's this reference to Jesus fulfilling this prophecy of coming into Jerusalem on this young donkey. Let me get my glasses because I'm using my small print Bible here. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9, 10, and 11. And this is the quote, the partial quote that John is using to apply to Jesus' triumphal entry into Zion amidst 
the shouts of these people who are wanting Jesus to be a political national liberator. The prophet Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation as he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now that's what John quotes here, but it goes on. The prophet says in verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. In other words, I will, I will, I will disable the, 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 the man-made weapons of war that Israel would have to liberate themselves. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And so isn't this fascinating that hundreds of years before, through the prophet Zechariah, he's speaking prophetically about Jesus coming in on this donkey, but the application is mixed up here. The people, the crowd are wanting Jesus to, let's, let's have victory now. And they're, they're waving palm branches as a kind of symbol of their last greatest military victory and liberation. And John is quoting this prophecy from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah that pictures Jesus not as a war hero, not as merely a political rescuer, but as a spiritual liberator. He's actually going to cut off the weapons of war. And so what Jesus has come to do is not merely to rescue his people from political captivity, although that is part of what God's people have dealt with through the ages, but to do something far greater, to rescue them from a, a captivity to sin and the forces of wickedness. And he's going to preach peace. And how is he going to do this? Through, it says it here in this Zechariah text, through the blood of his covenant, which is speaking clearly of what Jesus will shortly do on the cross. Here, here's just a point I want us to take away before we hurry along and get on to the rest of the text. Is that notice for the most part, the people, the average people, the Jewish leaders, misunderstood Jesus and his mission. They wanted him to be a political, military, national liberator. Now, it's easy for us to look down the end of our noses at them and say, oh, well, they, they got it wrong. But we see examples of, of how difficult it is for even Christians today. I mean, I'm getting on a plane and I'm going to India, and our brothers and sisters in India are increasingly finding it much more difficult to practice their faith. In fact, one of the pastors that I will go to be with this week was recently called into a police station and harassed because of his church and the work that they're doing, it is becoming increasingly more difficult to be a Christian there. We just had Gareth Franks with us, who was a missionary who planted these churches in India, but is now pastoring in the United Arab Emirates in Dubai and talking about some of the difficulties of witnessing to Arabs in this staunchly Muslim world. And there are brothers and sisters that are fearing for their life I think about Christians in China and other places. And so if you're living in that kind of context, it is very easy to just think immediately about some, some freedom from what you're going through right now. 
And so it's a little hypocritical for us to look back through the portals of time and say, oh, these, these average Jewish people who were under the thumb of these Roman captors, man, they didn't really get what Jesus was talking about. The point is, is that let's have a little mercy on these people for misunderstanding Jesus' mission because we too, in our own way, also are apt to misunderstand Jesus. Now, we may not be under quite the political uh, difficulty that the Romans were or that our Indian brothers and sisters were and are or that Indian or Chinese Christians are, although certainly we're starting to taste a little bit more of political hostility. But, but we too misunderstand Jesus and his mission. How do we do that? I think of just ways that, that I'm prone to do this. I just think of areas that I'm strong, and I try, to, I try to put an emphasis on that. Yeah, that's what Jesus is about, and areas that I'm weak, and I say, well, well you know, that's not that big of a deal, and I kind of want grace for the areas that I'm strong, and I want legalism for the, uh, grace for the areas that I'm weak, and legalism for the areas that I'm strong. And then I look at other Christians who seem to be struggling with things that I think are relatively simple, and I just can't get it. I just, well, Jesus, just come judge those people. They don't understand. They're on the wrong side of history. There's a kind of way of appropriating Jesus in our narrowly defined ways that is exactly what these people were doing here. May, may it not be so for me and you as we listen to this text. Well, let's keep going. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first about Jesus and the king prophecy of him coming on a donkey's colt. They did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, so that's speaking of when he was crucified and resurrected and ascended, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. <laughs> the point I just wrote on my notes on verse 16, hindsight is twenty twenty. You know, it's easy to see afterwards, ah, that's what was going on. I think we should just have a little grace for them and, and maybe a little grace for ourselves too. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. They were just telling people. So the crowd is growing. Here's this man who raised Lazarus from the dead. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. That's kind of an awkward translation. Basically, the Pharisees, are, is, he's causing sort of infighting. Jesus' popularity and miracles and the crowd that is gathering here on this feast, this, this, this Palm Sunday that we now know of, this week before the Passover, the Pharisees are frustrated with the growing popularity of Jesus. Remember at the end of John chapter 11, they want to put him to death. And so they're really talking, they're infighting here in verse 19. And they're saying, look, what, we, what we're doing is, 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 is folly. We're, we're not making any progress. Look, everybody's going after him to follow him is essentially what's happening in verse 19. And then verse 20, we're getting closer to Jesus' comments and Jesus' reaction to all this, which is one of the most important principles in all of the Bible for the Christian life. Verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. 
What a statement. What a statement. There's these Greeks. Were they Jews who were part of the diaspora, the scattering of the Jews uh, from, from hundreds of years before that were just Greek-speaking Jews? Or were they actual ethnic Greeks that were somewhat interested in the worship of the Jewish people? I think that's more likely. And they're coming, and they find one of the disciples, and they ask him this profound question, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So here are these Here's these seekers in some sense that in some way God is moving on their heart and they're coming to God's people and they're saying, sir, we wish to see Jesus. I, I, we, could, we could spend a lot of time on that, but let's just say that when God draws people, this is why we want to preach the word, why we want to sing the word, why we want to preach the gospel every Sunday, why we want to be very clear about what it means to follow Jesus, because there, there, there may be people in this room right now who don't even realize it, but that is the attitude of their heart. I, I wish to see Jesus. Would somebody, just, would somebody just explain what it means to follow Jesus clearly? There may be somebody in this room right now. And I pray that the ministry of the church and the mood of this church, the conversations that you might have with people that are part of this church, would lead you to see not us, not some tips for how to live a better pragmatic life, not some way to have a happy Tuesday, but that you would see Jesus. That's your greatest need. And that's our greatest need, is to, to see Jesus. What a, what a profound question, regardless of whether or not they, they understood what they were saying. In verse 22, Philip went and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And now we see a turn in Jesus. So remember, Jesus and previous interactions with his disciples when they wanted to rush him off to, to sort of, you know, let's, let's, let's take things by force. He said, no, my hour has not come. My hour has not come. But now, Jesus, knowing that the cross is near, there's a transition here, and Jesus is going to start speaking in these terms that the hour has come. In other words, the time has come for my work to be accomplished. In verse 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, listen to this now, verse 24, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What's Jesus saying here? Jesus is giving us just a very simple object lesson, and he is clearly applying it to his soon-to-be death and crucifixion and resurrection on the cross. That's what Jesus is painting this picture for. He's, he's, he's equating himself to this grain of wheat that must die. And the only way that this seed will actually bear fruit or do any good is if it dies. And then if it dies, it bears much fruit. What's the application of what Jesus is saying? He is saying that he is this grain of wheat. He must die. And he must go into the ground. And what is the fruit that he bears? The fruit that he bears is all of the spiritual benefits that we receive in Christ if we are trusting in him that Springer read for us from Ephesians chapter 1. 
What is the fruit that is born of Christ allowing the seed of his life to be planted in the earth and to be resurrected and to grow? What is the fruit? Well, God's wrath is satisfied. Our guilt is justified and his righteousness is imputed to us. Friends, in this word picture here in verse 24, Jesus essentially is speaking the gospel. He's saying that the only way that any fruit, any reconciliation, any good can happen is if I die. And what happens when I die? I bear the wrath of God and I remove it for all of my people and I rise again in victory and my righteousness is given to my people and now there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. With this one little agricultural analogy in verse 24, Jesus gives us a picture of the cross. And now he applies this dying to live, dying to bear fruit analogy of the cross. He now applies it to his people, to the lives of his followers, to the lives of Christians. Verses 25 and 26. These are the last two verses we'll read. Jesus gives us this principle. Whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life if anyone serves me he must follow me and where i am there my servant there will my servant be also if anyone serves me the father will honor him let me read verse 25 again here's this principle this loving that leads to hating and this hating that leads to loving. Jesus said, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now what is Jesus saying here? What's this love-hate language? What's this contrast? This is a very common, familiar Jewish idiomatic expression that would have been very common. It's, it's not speaking about a kind of absolute emotion, but it's meant to articulate a kind of preference. In other words, Jesus is saying, whoever's, whoever's preferring to, whoever, whoever is selfish, who's hoarding, who wants to prefer, who's putting, putting all of his hopes in his own life, he's going to lose it. But if you are not preferring yourself, you're not living for this world, you're actually going to keep your life. There's this kind of riddle that Jesus gives us. And I think this is really quite straightforward. The challenge of verse 25 is just disciplining ourselves to stare at it long enough for us to really believe it and behold it. Jesus is just saying that there's a way of loving and clinging to this world that will ultimately cause you to lose your life. And there is a way of living for things which are to come. There's a way of living for God and denying temporary pleasures and counterfeit joys and all of the things that we can accumulate in these 80 or 90 years which will actually cause you to inherit all that there is in Christ. That's what verse 25 is saying. It's a simple principle. 
And any of us that can stare at the Bible for more than just a few minutes or have it sufficiently explained to us, which I hope I'm doing now, can see that principle and we can understand it. But friends, here's the challenge. Actually living that out. I wrote down some notes for myself about what it looks like to love your life but lose it. It's self-acceptance without repentance. Well, God just made me this way. This is just who I am. I know what the Bible says about all of those things, but, you know, God's a God of grace, so it'll eventually work out for me in the end, right? That's a kind of love that leads to losing. It's a kind of making our feelings supreme and sovereign. Kind of living like this life is all that matters. And we live in this culture and in this world where this is bombard- we are bombarded with these messages. You only live once. Fear of missing out. These are common hashtags that anybody under the age of 25 is familiar with. And if you don't know what a hashtag is, you're actually better off. <laughs> but it just becomes part of the air we breathe bigger house more fitness nicer car more acclaim more status more 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 love of self more acceptance of self more 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 self-esteem more 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 of what makes me feel good about myself and all of this is what Jesus is talking about in verse 25 there's a way of loving your life that will in the end actually cause us to lose it and friends we need to recognize that we live in a culture that disciples us in this type of loving of things that will actually cause us to eventually lose it all then Jesus says there's a, kind of, there's a kind of hating. There's a kind of preferring. There's a kind of denying. There's a, there's a, kind, of, there's a kind of discipline that will actually lead you to keeping and inheriting so much more. It's a kind of denial of counterfeit pleasures that leads to greater delight. It's a kind of living with eternity as our goal rather than for the here and now. And I, and I want to say this, that living this way with a preference for the world to come rather than all the things that we can get now is, I think, the great challenge of the Christian life. I I believe it's true. And I think you, at least most of you, believe what I'm saying. And we're in a room right now on a Sunday morning, and the vibe is good. We've sang some songs. We feel pretty good about it. We're here. We believe the Bible. We understand the gospel. We're confessing Christians. But isn't it amazing how quickly we can lose perspective of this clear, simple truth when we leave this building? I've said it a million times, and I'll say it again. 
we, every one of us in here that is a Christian suffers from a kind of dreaded disease, and it is called gospel amnesia. And here's what I've determined. For my own life and for the life of this church, we have been a church now for 17 years. That verse 25 carves out a kind of way of living in the Christian life, which is at the very core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. On the surface, the world will lie to us and will say that this kind of self-denial will lead to missing out. But Jesus is saying the opposite, that there's a, a kind of way of obedience. There's a way of, of saying no so that you can say a greater yes that actually leads to eternal, surpassing joy. I believe that. I believe that. But it is a lot easier to say than it is to live on a Wednesday morning. Anybody else identify with that? So how do we do this? How do we live this type of life? And that's the principle I want you to see. I, I think it's straightforward. How do we do this? Well, first, I think we need to settle on a kind of ordinary, unspectacular plotting. I think our, cultural, I think our culture disciples us and makes us think that anything significant must be amazing. And that, that it's, a, it's a marketing technique, but it's a scheme of the enemy. Your church must be amazing. Your marriage must be amazing. Your children must be amazing. Everything must be amazing. But guess what? Very few things are amazing. And if we are addicted to experiences and amazing and awesome and emotional responses, we are setting ourselves up for a kind of chronic disappointment or we will always chase the wind. And we will jump from church to church, from job to job, from marriage to marriage, from hobby to hobby, from thing to thing, from fad to fad, from diet to diet, from this to this, and we will never be satisfied. This type of life is a, it's an ordinary, unspectacular life. It's a life that, that gives itself over to the ordinary means of grace, the Word of God, the people of God, giving yourself over to other people who are, you know what, kind of hard to be around and muddling through the same battle that you are and a lot of times will disappoint you and don't have all the answers and are hard to sit in a living room with and, and sometimes don't follow up with you and sometimes disappoint you and sometimes let you down. And guess what? You do all of those same things to them. And then God puts you together and instead of running from that, from experience to experience or whatever, wanting this or that or wanting some sort of version of life here in these 80 years that you can put on Instagram so that it will be awesome, if you settle down in that kind of mediocreness, there is a kind of beauty in that because you are realizing that this life is not all that there is. And you press on towards what is coming. Oh, God, help us with this. Help us. We, we are so addicted as Americans to awesomeness. 
And Jesus teaches that the only thing that is truly awesome is eternity with you. I want to live a good life. I want my kids to succeed. I want my marriage to be happy. I want my church to do well. I want my domestic flight in India to arrive safely in the town that it's going to. I, you know, I, I want a lot of things that are temporal. I do. I do. And I don't, I, don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I think Jesus is calling us to a kind of way of living where those things don't become the cul-de-sac for our hearts. They merely help us to press on towards eternity. Uh, maybe because I'm getting older, maybe because I'm a grandfather, I've been thinking much more about heaven lately. I don't, I don't plan on dying anytime soon. <laughs> don't, don't get, I've just been reading this book on heaven. And I think I've told you about it uh, a little bit before, but it's the author is a pastor in North Carolina. And he is meditating on eternity for the Christian. And one of the main points of his book is that this sort of eternal view, this, this long-term view, this, this eternal perspective, what I think is actually the heart of what Jesus is speaking about here in verse 25, it, it, this, this living for eternity is the great motivating, should be the great motivating force of the Christian. And of course, that's very difficult. That's why we need each other. That's why we need to preach the Bible. That's why we need to sing the Bible, pray the Bible. We need to reorient. We, we need to, in a sense, it's kind of like we're, we're coming in here every Sunday to detox ourselves from this, the garbage of this world. But the point that he's making is, as he says, that many Christians have a deficient and unbiblical view of heaven. And they think of heaven as being sort of static, meaning that, okay, our sins are forgiven, we're with God forever, what, you know, there's not much in the Bible else about that, so we're just kind of, you know, we're just sort of, what are we doing, just sort of sitting around the throne, just pray, just kind of doing the same thing, kind of day after day after day. And then we look at this world, and we look at all of the marketing that's thrown on us, and the, 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 the promise of more, 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 more. And so this world becomes more attractive. This world seems like it's always on the increase, even though that's a lie. And so it sort of, it sort of woos us away from being motivated for eternity and woos us to the temporary. But this pastor's point is, is that's a, a faulty view of, of heaven, he says that actually if we study the character and the nature and the attributes of God, God's holiness and, and God's transcendence and God's beauty and all of the attributes of God are infinite. And because God has no limit, His, his beauty and the enjoyment of His beauty is, is something that is not level, but it's, it's dynamic. It will always increase. And, and so think about this. If there is such a thing as time in heaven in that each surpassing moment in heaven will actually be an increase of joy because we will discover more about the unending infinite glory of God. And we don't know what that's going to be like, but, but I, I do know this, that, that it will be worth it and, and, and each successive moment will be an increase of joy that nothing in this world can compare to. And what Jesus here is clearly calling us to in verse 25 is to just 
Orient yourself that way. Look, look, life is hard. We're, we're going to forget this Wednesday, but we're going to come back next Sunday, and we're going to remember this, and we're going to help each other follow Jesus, and we are going to link arms, and we are going to press on, and we're going to keep our head up, because, we, because we're going there, we're not staying here. That, that's what this text is saying. And that's what I, man, I need to see that. And I think you do too. I think you do too. Ever-increasing joy is the motivation of the Christian so that they can hate this life so that it will lead to love. Uh, I was studying verse 25 this week, and you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to jump on a plane to Philadelphia. I wanted to put on a gray sweatsuit. And I wanted to run through the street markets of Philly. And I wanted to run up those steps. And I wanted somebody to be following me along with a boombox playing Eye of the Tiger. <laughs> because this text wants me to come out swinging. Swinging. And Wednesday, I'm going to be cowered in the corner and I'm going to need you. And you're going to be in the corner too on Thursday and you're going to need me. And we need to fight for this. Let's pray. Lord, help us. There's a way of loving the things of this world that leads to death and hate and pain. And there's a way of hating things that will never satisfy that leads to eternal, unending joy. Lord, I, I pray that we would see this, see this truth and that it would smell so delicious, that it would appear so beautiful, that it would sound so wonderful, that it would draw us heavenward. And Lord, when we get dirty from this week, Bring us back in here for a, another bath in your word so that we can do it all again. In Jesus' name, amen.